The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. The Wall Street rebound continues as U.S. stocks nearly wipe out all of last week's major losses, with the Dow sitting less than 5% below its intraday all-time high. Stocks across Asia edge higher as Beijing sets its new lending reference slightly lower in its debut, while Washington grants Huawei another 90-day reprieve but adds more affiliates to the blacklist. Facebook and Twitter call out China. The social media firms take action to block accounts they claim are being used in a Beijing-backed propaganda campaign against Hong Kong protesters. BHP posts its biggest annual profit in five years and declares a record dividend, but warns the U.S.-China trade war is a major threat to growth. Well, good morning and a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. We are starting out the week on a positive note. Wall Street ending in positive territory yesterday. Of course, after a volatile week last week, we saw the Nasdaq actually close above 8,000 and the Dow close above 26,000 for the first time since August 13th. Uh, S&P is now just three points away from regaining all of Wednesday's losses. So investors are really uh, taking some respite, perhaps in the fact that we've seen yields now rise uh, in the Treasury space, which was one of the real reasons that we saw investor panic last Last week, the inversion of that 10-year, two-year part of the curve. And now we are seeing a little bit of respite coming through on the yield front, and that's providing a little bit of room for investors to get back into the risk-on uh, risk mode. So uh, gains across the board for U.S. stocks yesterday. Let's take a look at the Treasury uh, at the Treasury curve here. As I mentioned, we have seen now yields rising across the board. A couple of stats to just give you. The two-year, 10-year spread hit a high of 10.7 yesterday. That was the highest since August 12th. We also saw the 30-year hit a high of 2.13%. Now it's trading around 2.078%, but significantly higher than last week when we saw the 30-year cross below the 2% mark, uh, hitting the lowest uh, of all time. So across the board, we're seeing a little bit of a relief coming through. And of course, remember this week, we've got a lot of Fed focus for investors. We've got the Fed meeting minutes due out on Wednesday. And then we've got Jerome Powell giving his remarks at the Jackson Hole Symposium later in the week. So investors are questioning how the Fed will frame their views toward policy moving forward, whether we're in for a more sustained, substantial easing cycle. Uh, so investors are all eyes on the Fed as the week progresses. Let's take a look at dollar crosses and what we're seeing here. Uh, a little bit of stability really coming through. The euro about 0.09% versus the dollar. Sterling basically flat versus the dollar at the 1.21 mark. And uh, the dollar uh, about 0.07% uh, lower versus the yen. Moving on, let's take a look at oil markets. Yesterday, we saw a rally in oil as investors really piled into those riskier assets. WTI ended about 2.4% up, Brent about 1.9%. Now, a little bit of stability again coming through in the oil space. So investors holding on to the gains that we saw in oil yesterday. Gold basically flatlining as well, but below the $1,500 mark. We did see gold retreat yesterday as investors really pulled assets from the safe havens that they'd piled into in the 
the volatile week we saw last week and uh, and and put them into riskier assets and gold was one of the uh, one of the losers yesterday settling down about 0.79%. Moving on, we'll take a look at Asian markets where the gains continue with the Shanghai Composite in slightly positive territory, the Hang Seng as well. Now, this is day one in the Asian session for China's new loan prime rate. Uh, you'll remember over the weekend, we heard from the PBOC that they are making uh, making an effort to bring down financing costs for companies struggling amid the U.S.-China trade war and the broader slowdown in China. We heard, interestingly, from the PBOC vice governor just this morning that there is room for cuts in both the reserve requirement and lending rates. So some hopes of further stimulus coming from the Beijing authorities. But altogether, we're looking at a green session coming through for Asian markets. Finally, let's take a look at your European opening calls. Uh, looking like a fairly muted start to trade here in Europe. Uh, red across the board, but the magnitude of these moves very slim. So a lot, of course, could change here. But it looks as though investors pausing for breath after more gains for European equities yesterday. Stock 600, st- stock 600 climbed about 1.1% with gains across all sectors. So investors uh, just uh, taking a bit of uh, a bit of of a moment to pause and decide whether to continue buying buying this rally. So we'll uh, keep an eye on these features as the morning progresses. Karen. Juliana, thank you. Day one for China's new loan prime rate and the one year is just 10 basis points lower than the existing benchmark. Banks will now use a rate of 4.25% when they make new loans to households and businesses. The central bank's vice governor said future policy will focus on the revamped LPR, but there is still room to cut both the triple R and lending rates. A 100 basis point cut and more QE. That's what President Trump says he wants to see from the Federal Reserve. But Boston Fed President Eric Rosengreen isn't on board. He says there's no evidence of a U.S. slowdown yet, calling the economy pretty good during an interview on Bloomberg. CNBC will speak to a number of Fed presidents when policymakers gather in Wyoming later this week for the Jackson Hole Symposium. Plus, we have an exclusive interview with Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. A White House official has denied the Trump administration is looking at a payroll tax cut. In a statement to CNBC, the official said, quote, As Larry Kudlow said yesterday, more tax cuts for the American people are certainly on the table. But cutting payroll taxes is not something under consideration at this time. It comes after the Washington Post reported the measure was being discussed to stem a possible downturn in the economy. Adam Phillips joins us, a director of portfolio strategy, EP Wealth Advisors. Adam, let's just delve a little bit further into that Washington Post story because Trump has used tax cuts to juice the economy before, so investors are used to that storyline. But this time around, if there happened to be a change to payroll taxes, would it even work given there's an unemployment rate of 3.7%? Surely it would just start to put pressure on wages, which would just be another cost for businesses. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, we, we do have to consider the, the potential cost to wages, which are already rising. And, you know, you, you increase inflationary pressure. And I think that really works against what he's trying to achieve and, and trying to get the, the Fed to do and, and uh, reduce rates. I, I think the fact that uh, the Fed can be as flexible as they can be in, in today's environment is, is because inflation is so low. But uh, you have to be careful about stoking some inflationary pressure from here. We've got a market that is looking for fresh stimulus, whether it's in the form of fiscal stimulus, tax cuts that are being touted, or for central bank policy to do more heavy lifting. What do you make of where investors stand with the level of uncertainty around a trade war and the efforts they're seeking from central banks or governments at this point to shore up economic growth? 
Yeah, well, I, I think the market and, and really the president, too, they're saying they, they're really looking for the Fed to, to kind of have a, a draggy moment uh, and, and do whatever it takes. I, I think they could be setting themselves up for disappointment. You're looking at, at uh, uh, you know, uh, President Trump's comments today about looking for at least 100 basis points in cuts and, and you know, that the market itself is not too far off in their expectation. Um, so I, I think that what, you know, even if we do see more rate cuts, unless we see progress on the trade front, it's going to be like stepping on the gas with, with the other foot really on the brake. So it's going to be hard to achieve that. I think in the end, what my personal feeling is that uh, the uh, additional rate cuts are probably not going to help uh, the, the economy so much. They're going to help the market. And so we really need some progress on the trade front, um, I think, is the most important thing. Now, the U.S. consumer has been a pillar of strength for the U.S. economy. It's what the, the Fed has cited many times as one of the reasons that they're you know, still confident to a degree about the strength of the economy. And now in the last few days around trade, we've heard President Trump and his administration cite the consumer as one of the, the reasons that they are, they're, they're cautious when it comes to these more uh, intense trade uh, maneuvers in Huawei in their decision over the last 24 hours to extend that reprieve when it comes to uh, the ban and doing business with Huawei, we heard Wilbur Ross uh, cite that they want to give consumers more time to adjust. So does that give you confidence that the Trump administration in pursuing China on the trade front is going to be uh, very protective of the U.S. consumer? No, it, it certainly gives me a little bit more confidence. I'm happy to see them acknowledge that. Uh, you know, we, we have seen retail sales um, continue to be quite strong here, but we did see market sentiment drop off quite a bit uh, to a seven-month low on, on Friday. And so I think you need to be careful here. You know, the, the consumer, as you said, is one of the, the few bright spots in this economy, and, and it's one of the reasons that we, although recession risks have increased over the last few weeks, uh, it's really what's keeping us out of the, the recession for now. Obviously, uh, from the business front, uh, things are, are a little cloudy, uh, but the consumer, uh, to the extent that we can keep consumer confidence strong and the consumer willing to, to spend, I, I think that's uh, going to be key in, in keeping our economy moving forward. Adam, last week, a lot of the, the sell-off that we saw came on the back of that inversion of the 10-year, two-year yield curve. And now, in the last uh, couple of days, as the rally has come together, it's come alongside a rebound in yields as they've risen across the board, and that spread has now widened. How concerned are you about the signal we got from the 10-year, two-year last week? Do you think the market was a little bit uh, overeager to take, uh, take a, or panic on the back of that uh, move? I think so. I, I think I'm certainly not alone in, in, uh, in, in saying that the inverted yield curve, it's not an imminent sell signal. It's also not an imminent uh, sign of, uh, of a recession. And so we, we need to be careful about overreacting when we see it. It's, it's one input that, that we consider uh, in, in our economic uh, analysis. And, and so we, we certainly are mindful that the in curve did invert briefly. It could invert again. But we're looking at other things, too. And, and I think we also want to acknowledge the fact that this time around, I, I think one could argue that, um, you know, that the yield curve might not be as, as predictive uh, as it was just because of where we were starting with yields and other forces that are driving yields lower. Adam, just talk us through some of the market action that you're embarking upon because we had a, a market that tracked high yesterday. You remain overweight equities, but you are reducing your exposure to some high-yielding areas of the bond market. So just talk us through some of those ideas. Sure, absolutely. So it, we, we are slightly overweight equities. We're, we've gotten a little bit more cautious in, in uh, recent weeks and months, just, uh, just trying to take some of the risk off the table there. As you said, most of it has been 
reducing uh, credit exposure across our bond portfolios. Uh, within equities, though, we, uh, we continue to like sectors like real estate, uh, technology uh, for their strong balance sheets, uh, and also just looking towards growth, thinking growth companies can do well as the economy slows down. Um, sectors we're, we're really avoiding or trying to watch our exposure as utilities, just cautious about valuations there. Um, healthcare also. Uh, you know, we, we like healthcare, but we just want to be mindful of the, the headline risk there associated with the uh, upcoming election next year and certainly talk about Medicare for all and, and the headlines there uh, just is not helpful for a lot of those stocks. But I think that, uh, you know, we, we are uh, still overweight, uh, overweight stocks. And I think a lot of it is going to be uh, that, that Tina trade that uh, so many people are talking about now. There is no alternative. And it, with, with the recent move downward in yields, we see about 75% of S&P 500 companies are yielding more than the 10-year. And more than 60% of stocks in the index are yielding more than the 30-year now. So I really think that that, that just really speaks to investors um, gravitating towards other sources of yield, even though I, I will admit that, that Tina alone is not a long-term investment thesis. We're still going to need some, some help uh, on, the, on the global uncertainty front. But I think for now that, that um, provides some kind of a bullish case. So we've gone from FOMO, fear of missing out, to back to Tina Trade. Thank you very much, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Much appreciated. Adam Phillips, Director of Portfolio Strategy, EP Wealth Advisors. Well, as I mentioned there in our conversation with Adam, the U.S. has granted another 90 days for Huawei to do business with U.S. companies. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said the extension would help smaller American consumers and firms to transition away from the Chinese tech giant's products. At the same time, the Commerce Department added more than 40 of Huawei's affiliates to its blacklist. Huawei called the decision, quote, unjust and politically motivated. Hong Kong's leader says she hopes the peaceful weekend will be a turning point for demonstrations in the Chinese-ruled city. Carrie Lam announced further investigations into police brutality complaints and reiterated there were no plans to revive the suspended extradition bill that sparked the unrest 11 weeks ago. Further protests by professional groups and students are planned this week. A Chinese state newspaper has blasted U.S. interference in Hong Kong and President Trump's linkage of protests with a trade deal. A Global Times editorial called out unnamed high-ranking U.S. officials. It said were pushed by the media into making, quote, meaningless threats around trade talks. The article stressed Beijing did not need to consider Washington's opinion in its decisions around Hong Kong. Twitter and Facebook have suspended hundreds of accounts after revealing what they say was a Beijing-backed social media campaign aimed at spreading disinformation about Hong Kong. Sherry joins us with more. Sherry, we've seen social media used as a weapon before. Talk us through the evidence that the social media companies claim they found on their sites. That's right, a very powerful tool, I guess, when it comes to information war in 2019. And uh, as I've been reporting on this uh, Hong Kong protest story for weeks now, uh, at one point I started noticing a lot of promoted tweets, for example, in English language coming from state-run media, uh, Chinese media. And, of course, uh, that has, uh, you know, a lot of content on Hong Kong, uh, protest-related content. What uh, the latest is that Twitter and Facebook, they say, this is a result of China basically uh, spreading disinformation about Hong Kong protests. So Twitter, for one, has suspended more than nine 
hundred accounts that are believed to be linked to that particular campaign. And the st statement actually uh, talking about how there is the clear evidence uh, coming from uh, China, state-backed operations. So that's uh, really uh, been, um, you know, really the line that's coming from Twitter. In the meantime, Facebook also says that it's got a tip from Twitter and it's also decided to take down several pages, groups and accounts that they believe to be involved in this misinformation campaign. And Facebook went on to say that there has been a coordinated in authentic behavior targeting Hong Kong. So we're looking at, of course, uh, some of the images on Facebook a statement showing some of the examples of the suspended accounts, showing the violent clashes and uh, some of the images that they make to be, you know, they make believe to be Hong Kong protesters. Some are actually questioning how there's really no difference between Hong Kong protesters and ISIS fighters and images of human faces uh, with the bodies of cockroaches. So not exactly um, really um, the nice depiction of Hong Kong protesters. And this uh, comes as we are, of course, setting the scene here when it comes to the mainland China. The social media like Twitter, Facebook, they are actually blocked uh, from using on mainland China because of the great uh, firewall. And it really goes to show how this English version of promoted tweets uh, have been spreading uh, to uh, uh, perhaps help the state agenda regarding Hong Kong protests. In the meantime, I would like to add that Twitter has also decided to ban state-run media entities from making advertisements on Twitter. So that's really the uh, promoted tweets part. So uh, Twitter says that uh, any entities that are editorially and financially controlled by state media or state uh, will not be able to get their ads out on Twitter. Guys? So, uh, thank you very much, Sherry. Cleansing on social media. I wonder how long it takes for some of these accounts to regroup and just pop open in some other forum. But uh, thank you very much for bringing us the latest. Ahead on the show, Italy's Prime Minister takes centre stage ahead of a potential no-confidence vote. What could happen next? We'll break it down. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Boris Johnson has called on the European Union to replace the Irish backstop with a commitment to implement alternative arrangements within the transition period. In a letter to European Council President Donald Tusk, the British Prime Minister said the UK is ready to look constructively and flexibly at the issue. 
Ahead of meetings this week with Germany's Angela Merkel and France's Emmanuel Macron, Johnson said he hoped the EU would be open to compromise. Our friends and partners on the other side of the channel are showing a little bit of reluctance at the moment to change their position. That's fine. I'm confident that they will. But in the meantime, we have to get ready for, for a no-deal outcome. I want a deal. We're ready uh, to, to work with our friends and partners to get a deal. But if you want a, a good deal for the UK, you must simultaneously get ready uh, to come out with that one. Meanwhile, the prime minister also spoke with President Trump on the phone. Downing Street says both leaders discussed trade and Brexit. Trump later tweeted that both men talked about how to move rapidly on a free trade agreement. He said he looked forward to meeting Johnson at the G7 summit in Biarritz this weekend. Uh, in other news, Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is due to address the Senate today. The far-right Lega party could table a no-confidence motion in an attempt to force a snap election after its coalition with Five Star collapsed. However, PD and Five Star have held talks and a potential partnership between both parties remains an option. Willem now joins us in Rome uh, covering all the latest. Willem, will investors and businesses have any greater certainty by the end of today? In a word, Juliana, no, probably not. Essentially, that possibility that the five-star movement, which is currently in government, would work with the PD, the Partito Democratico, who are in the opposition, has seemingly frightened uh, Matteo Salvini, the leader of Lega, who was, of course, the other coalition partner here in Rome. And it might mean that he doesn't push ahead with a no-confidence vote, because if those two parties were to tie up, they would essentially, with a few independents, manage to get a majority in the Senate. They'd have a very comfortable majority in Italy's lower chamber of parliament. And that would mean they'd have a government. And that's something, of course, that as legal leader, he's not very happy to countenance. What investors will be watching, of course, if that were to happen as one possibility that could come out of today, if there is a no confidence vote and no all of those caveats, is that a new government involving the PD would be a lot more EU friendly than the current one has been. And of course, if you're looking at things like bond yields, you're looking at risk around Italy. It's that relationship between Rome and Brussels that's incredibly important because of the size of the debt pile, because of the challenges around deficit spending. And we've already heard from one of the chief economic spokespersons for the Lega that if they were to form a government, they need 40% in a national election if there was an election, they would look to cut taxes. How they do that is anyone's guess. One of the big challenges for whoever's in government over the next few months ahead of a new budget being confirmed by the end of the year is avoiding an automatic increase in the VAT. They need to find, and I've talked to you guys about this recently, 23 billion euros to avoid that kicking in automatically. And right now, there's no one that I've spoken to, no one that has been speaking publicly who has said they have an option to try and avoid that. And that's going to be really critical for investors. Willem, I was reading a think piece this morning that suggested Italy could swing towards uh, the likes of uh, Hungary or Poland with the sort of tactics we're seeing from Salvini, very strong arm tactics and anti-EU. What do you make of that type of analysis? It comes down to who he works with if he does get elections. And of course, ultimately, the elections, Karen, are down to Sergio Mattarella, the president. He would be the one that can dissolve the parliament, even if there is a successful no-confidence vote in Giuseppe Conti. All that means is that Conti has to resign. So if there are elections, let's say they're in late October, early November, that's the kind of timeline we'd be looking at. And if Salvini does succeed, 
on his own. Of course, he'll have complete control if he gets more than 40% of the national vote and gets enough lawmakers in the building behind me. But if he works with the Brothers of Italy on the far right, or even Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, certainly the government will have much more control of the levers of power over issues like immigration, over issues like foreign policy. The relationship with the EU will necessarily be a lot more antagonistic even than it is today, because Salvini sees that as a very convenient straw man, something that he can constantly criticize in order to strengthen his domestic support. Willem, uh, in terms of the, the Brussels take on Italy and uh, how they're poised to react to a, a Salvini-led government, do we have a sense of whether they're going to take a softer approach than they have in the past, given the new leadership that's come together in Brussels? A lot of Italian politicians wish they were at the beach because, of course, it is the summer vacation season. Of course, they're not. They're all back here preparing for these potential votes here. But in Brussels, a lot of them are on vacation. So we've not heard from any of the major leaders there in terms of reaction to what might happen here. No doubt they are waiting to see quite how things turn out. There's quite a dizzying number of possibilities that could result from today's events. And until we know with greater certainty what the future looks like over the next weeks and months, it's unlikely that we'll hear any details from the Commission, the executive branch of the EU, as to how they would respond to a more antagonistic government. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.